Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Ormond Beach, Florida. As my family and I continue our RV homeschooling, road schooling journey, we uh, are just north of Daytona, uh, making our way north. And it is uh, uh, just a beautiful day and a wonderful time to be hosting Gregory Perrin, who is the Associate Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at a longtime partner of Evertrue's St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I am joined by a special co-host, my colleague, Jessica Fry, who is a Strategic Customer Success Manager at Evertrue, uh, who has also championed uh, some of our uh, really important internal uh, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives at Evertrue over the last year, which is a topic that we will for sure cover, uh, given Gregory's shared interest and in work in that regard. Uh, but we thought it would be fun to welcome Jessica, who's had the opportunity to collaborate with the St. Ed's team as well. So Jessica, here we go. Yeah, thanks, Brent. I've only ever listened to these podcasts, so it'll be fun to be on it. Love it. Uh, well, we are going to, uh, for sure, get to some of the things that are top of mind in 2021 and beyond. But I love going back in time, Gregory, to better understand our guests. Uh, and specifically, I want you to think back to Gregory, junior, senior year of high school, who's trying to chart his own path uh, to higher education. Uh, I want to know more about that guy, what you're into, and what led you to the University of Houston. Well, wow, that is way back. Um, let me dust off my memory. Um, as a junior and senior, I was really thinking, well, leading into that, all my, all my life growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer, right? And so um, I thought that that would be my path. And then when I got to that junior, senior year, all of my friends were um, majoring or deciding to go into engineering. You know, I was in the math club and all those other honor societies and things. And so I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to do that as well and had no idea what an engineer did. And I selected architectural engineering because I enjoy architecture and I probably should have just majored in architecture. Long story short, um, was accepted into uh, another university's engineering program. And the short of it is um, I did not complete that engineering program because I was not meant to be an engineer. And I went and I finished at the University of Houston, both my undergrad and graduate in theater. Now, the backstory of that is, um, along with wanting to be uh, a lawyer, and I wanted to be like a, a, a civil rights lawyer. I mean, the Thurgood Marshall um, type of person. And uh, with that, I did you know speech and debate theater all through my life. I mean, my first speech was in church at the age of five. I recited the 23rd Psalms, right? And so I had been doing that from elementary all through middle school, high school, um, even early college days when I was an engineering major, I was still doing plays. And it just dawned on me, uh, you know, after my third year of being in college without a defined major to decide I should just probably do what I want to do. And that that's how I got to... Uh, to the path that I'm on right now. So I ended up with two degrees in theater. And it's fair to say that the Venn diagram overlap of engineers who love to do plays, not a huge overlap. Not and huge. then you add folks that are in the army on top of that and there's one person and that's you. So, so where did uh, the army um, emerge as part of your journey? And, and just tell me about, about that aspect of your um, uh, development. Well, um, so the Army, I absolutely love uh, the Army military life, um, along with everything else that I've shared, I would have loved to have been uh, a military officer. And so when I got into high school, jumped into ROTC, and I'll just give you a little bit more. I'm an Eagle Scout, so I was in Boy Scouts from sixth grade on. So all of this community service, public service, all that is just me. And um, RTC was very successful in high school, was an RTC in college. And it was from there that I joined the reserves, uh, hoping that eventually I might you know, go into active duty, go to OCS and do all that kind of thing. And it didn't quite work out the way I intended. Uh, and, and I tell this story to, to the folks who 
know that little bit of my history. I have two very close friends that, of course, I grew up with middle school and church and whatever. And because I will take credit for them eventually becoming military officers, and both of them have, uh, you know, they got into ROTC because I was in ROTC. One of them joined, he was in college, he joined the reserves because I was in the reserves. So who are they? What are their titles? Where are they now? <laughs> so one is my dear friend, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Greta Bennett. She's in Tampa Bay, actually. Uh, and she and I have been friends since like seventh grade, elementary, high school, all that. Uh, and so she was in RTC after I got an RTC in high school and then joined the reserves when she was in uh, at Howard and went on to get her commission and have a wonderful career. She just retired a couple of years ago. My other buddy is Major um, Eddie Chu, and he may be Lieutenant Colonel by now, but I, I know he's Major. He's stationed in Germany. And uh, again, he, he and I were in the reserves together in San Antonio, out of college. He finished at Prairie View A&M, got his commission and moved on. So I have lived through them vicariously. I love it. Well, we got to make sure they get a copy of uh, the podcast. We'll make sure to find a way to, to send a link. Um, but, you know, that is a really unique background. You know, the combination of, of, of interest in engineering, interesting in drama and the arts, you know, passion for the military. Um, but ultimately, it was the arts that hooked you. And you did pursue that Bachelor of Arts in Drama at the University of Houston and then also uh, received the Master of Fine Arts in Theater. Were there any performances that you were a part of? or that you've participated in that really stand out to you as being um, just some great memories? Uh, yes, I uh, two in particular. Uh, one was uh, the Comedy of Errors. Uh, I was cast as one of like the, the third wise man from the left type of role, but it was set in the 60s. And so it was a lot of neon signs and hippie stuff. And so um, my role, which I had like three or four lines, uh, the costumer who, you know, one of our professors who I absolutely love, she decided to put me in a, an afro with, a, with that little band that goes around the afro, sort of Jimi Hendrix. Actually, was it, now that I think about it, it was, it was, I looked like Jimi Hendrix. Um, no shirt, leather jacket with a big medallion. Right. So we'd love to include a picture of that as part of our <laughs> podcast notes. If you could track one down, would that be OK? You know, I'll have to check the archives. I don't think one of those pictures exists. But if I find one, I'll share it with you. <laughs> uh, and so that just the, just the costume. And, and this is the role that costumers play. I mean, theater is a collaboration, but costumers give you really that characters. You're sitting doing table reads and, and trying to find the character and you're finding the voice and the connections with other characters on stage and actors. When you, when you see your costume, man, it is it. And that put me right in the mood. I mean, I strolled out on stage and of course I had friends in the audience and I could hear them just screaming, busting out laughing, you know, while I'm trying to stay in character on stage. So that happens, you know. Um, and so that that's my that's one of my fondest memories. But I have had um, I've had a very you know I've, I've I have a decent resume of acting and producing and directing uh, prior to you know the the career that I that I'm in right now. So well, that's a great memory, and I hope we can track down a photo or, or maybe even video of that strut on stage. That sounds pretty uh, pretty special and. Um, and it was, it seems like that that combination of, uh, look, there are a lot of people that do that work that are actors that are passionate about um, the arts um, that don't ultimately make their way into the fundraising realm. But it was kind of that intersection point of philanthropy and the arts that was your first um, role in, in true fundraising at the Houston uh, Grand Opera. So what was it, you know, as you went through, I, I would imagine you didn't decide to do the two degrees to launch a career in fundraising. Um, you know, the, there was obviously a pivot along the way. What was it that brought you into this sector? Uh, very good question. I, I will credit my one professor, Claire Marie Verhegan, who was the costuming professor at, at University of Houston at the time. And I, I mentioned her specifically because the role of faculty members in developing students is very, is critical. 
Um, and sometimes we don't acknowledge that um, as much. And many of us probably have a faculty member in our chosen um, discipline that really was an example and set you on a path. So Claire Marie did that for me. I was in graduate school. And much like every other acting or directing uh, MFA student, we're thinking we're going to go somewhere and do this. If it's not Broadway, it's, you know, the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, Utah Shakespeare Festival, it's somewhere I'm going to work. Um, and she perhaps saw something that I didn't see. And, and I kid her and I, I share this, that she probably saw that I was not headed towards Broadway, Los Angeles or anywhere. And she said to me, she said, Greg, have you thought about arts management? Had never heard of it, no idea what that was. And she said, you know, I want to let you know that, you know, the guy downtown at the Alley Theater in Houston, she says, well, he is, you know, the, the, the executive director and she didn't tell me anything about arts management. She said, you know, he makes about X amount of dollars, you know, which was probably something like $60,000. I don't know. It's 30 years ago, right? And I said, what? I said, tell me about arts management. And the connector there was, you know, I had thought that I would have to struggle with this arts degree and try to find my way and do things. But there's somebody with an arts kind of focused degree and they're making a living where they can, you know, get married, have a family and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, tell me about that. Um, and in all seriousness, that put me on my path. And I'm a person who I am a lifelong learner. I investigate, I read about everything. And, you know, I think the beginning of this conversation lets you know that, you know, my interests are varied. And so when I tap into something, I'm going to learn all I can, drill down. What is it? How do you be successful at it? And if that's my thing, I'm going forward. And I was fortunate to get um, a competitive internship at the Cultural Arts Council in Houston uh, that was funded for the summer. And it was miraculous. Um, what they had me do in a two-month period was to design a year so nine months of technical assistant workshops for nonprofit arts organizations in Houston. So I had to research uh, board development, fundraising, public relations, marketing, um, HR to find consultants and different things so that each month there was another series that these arts organizations could, could come to. Um, I surveyed arts organizations. I talked with the EDs, put together a proposal and did all that in two months. Uh, it was quite a successful uh, series. And, um, and from there on, I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. And, uh, and the real jump from that internship was very critical to, to Houston Grand Opera was when the opera was looking for an entry level person, they called the Arts Council. They said, do you have anybody you can recommend? And they recommended me. And so, um, literally the rest is history. Uh, I was started I Houston Grand Opera, yeah. I love it and such a, an important um, reminder of the role that, you know, internships and well-paid internships can have in, uh, in really being a, an on-ramp into a new career path. I, I just have to ask now when you um, make that move, it sounds like a really intensive two-month internship program, but it sounds like they sort of threw you into the, the world of fundraising once you started you managed a portfolio of 30 donors as a very, you know, recent uh, graduate with, let's be honest, very little experience around fundraising. Any early memories you have with the, any of those donors, either that went really well or really poorly or, or, you know, just anything stand out among some of those first interactions? Um, I learned a lot between the years that I was at Houston Grand Opera and then when I made a quick jump. Um, to a management level um, at the AIDS Foundation in Houston. And the few things were the importance of uh, really relationships and listening to donors. Um, and at Houston Grand Opera, it was, um, I did special events as well as uh, corporate giving. <laughs> Excuse me. And in those situations, planning events, uh, being in folks' home, um, listening to how they want, you know, the, the table set up, talking with caterers, 
this whole role of how do um, I support your vision while supporting the vision of the organization um, was very critical. Uh, one of the corporate donors at uh, the opera at that time also put me on another path. Um, just you, you're learning way more about me than you probably wanted to know, but I'll tell you this little short this thing. This is exactly what we wanted to know. So here I am, um, and all of this is new to me. Even though I did that internship, fundraising as a concept was totally, I'll say this, fundraising as an organized system of developing resources for an organization was foreign to me. I had actually done fundraising throughout my you know, high school years and not realized that's what it was. And I can give you a story about that if you're interested. But uh, at Houston Grand Opera, I was visiting one of these corporate executives, a CEO of a small company. And, um, and I was asking him, and he realized I was junior, just green, not really knowing anything. Somebody had sent me to pick up a check more than anything. So, I mean, the, the idea that I was actually doing fundraising um, is, is kind of a stretch in this one situation. But I, 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 you know, I talked to him, made a relationship, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, fencing. And I'm thinking, should I join a fencing club or should I just pick up golf? Because at that time I was thinking about both of them. And he looked at me like I had three heads. And he said, golf. He said, you're not gonna raise no money at the fencing club. He said, go play golf. And so <laughs> I play golf nowadays. I don't, I don't fence as much as I used to. And so I share that just as the relationship pit, you know, talking to people, having real conversations and getting to know them. And, and he ended up, of course, you know, I made a, uh, a, a contribution. A big learning I, I learned at the AIDS Foundation Houston. And, and again, as I'm sharing these, this is very early on, as you've asked, you know, I, I've, I've learned uh, since then. I had a donor who um, made, we asked for a significant gift. And we asked for a significant gift to, for us, the organization, to hire a consultant to help us think about the AIDS walk in Houston. So at that time, as the director of development for the AIDS Foundation, uh, I produced the AIDS walk in Houston. And I say I had a team, uh, my special events person and others, but I was the, you know, the, the executive who ran that. And um, we had done it for a few years, but there was this whole national trend of branding and things of that nature. And we wanted to get on that on that uh, path. And so it costs, I, I don't remember the dollar amount, maybe $25,000 or more to get this consultant. They would redo all of our rebranding and everything. And there was a donor who loved the AIDS walk. And when we talked to him, he says, you know what? Eh, I'm not a big, I'm not a big consultant guy. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I don't know if I want to do this because consultants, you know, what are you paying them for? You could try to come up with all this. Long story short, we convinced him to make the gift and when he and when he, also when he was talking to us, he was like, you know what, I don't want don't don't worry about putting my name on anything. Just just get it done. And, you know, sort of I don't need any recognition. Kind of what I took from this. So let's fast forward. We get the consultant. We rebrand everything. Enormous success. Right. I mean, 5000 walkers down middle of Houston, blocking off of the, the streets in Houston, all this, this big thing, big party, everything, wonderful success. So the day after that, my boss calls me into her office and she, she, she literally screams at me down the hall. My office is down the hall. And, you know, the, 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 my, my executive director at that time, who I definitely love now, we're still friends. We, she would do that. That was her culture. Right. And she would just kind of yell lovingly at any of the executives down the hall. Hey, I need to talk to you. Come here, whatever. And so I come running down the hall and I'm like, what is it? And she's like, um, did we say thank you to Mr. So-and-so? I said, well, I mean, we sent him a thank you note. No, he didn't want it. I mean, we didn't say anything from the stage. He's livid. He's livid. And he says, if you all don't appreciate what I've done for you, I will not be supporting this organization anymore. And that hit me like a sack. I was just like, you know, what the hell am I doing? I just, I just got to go, you know, I got to go back to the bookstore and sell books or something, um, which was another job I had. So I'm not making that up. That was one of my favorite jobs. 
what I learned from that was the donor had, had told me in no uncertain terms, I don't need any recognition. And at that time being very junior and not really understanding this part of stewardship, I heard him at his word and I went on with my event and didn't make him feel, he was at the event, didn't make him feel like he had any part of this event other than any of the other 5,000 walkers and things of that nature. And that was 24, 25 years ago, about 24 years ago. And I remember it today. And I, I have never made that mistake and I won't make that mistake again. And that's such that an interesting. It's such an interesting story because I don't know if you followed this, but literally yesterday, did you see the article about the University of South Carolina? Their, oh, their largest it. donor uh, who's given $75 million. Uh, her mother recently passed away and she'd also given $10 million to Clemson University. And when that donor's mother passed away, Clemson went out of their way to honor her mother, to recognize the mother, to uh, reach out to this important donor. Uh, and she and she just wrote um, that she's embarrassed and humiliated to be associated with the University of South Carolina, who did not acknowledge any um, you know aspect of her mother's death on April 1st. And um, just think about that. I mean, the, the, whether somebody is given 25 million or in your case, uh, 25,000, that sentiment, there's a difference. I think what you're hitting at is there's a difference between public recognition and expressing gratitude. And, exactly. and, uh, and, and I think that is probably the, the disconnect that you experience that I'm sure mm -hmm. folks are scrambling to address at, at South Carolina this week. Exactly. That expression of gratitude. And I've learned that. And so that's sort of the, the place I start with now in my fundraising um, is talking when I'm talking with a major donor and listening and listening and listening. Um, I want to know what is it you want to do? How, what difference do you want to make with this gift? And what does it mean to you? And how do we help you? Uh, what is our role in delivering that meaning for you? And I, you know, and so that's, that undergirds my conversations and that, that's what I'm trying to, to figure out. But gratitude is at the top of the list. And I think many, what, what I didn't realize then and what my, the last 20 plus years has uh, taught me, the more that I have talked with donors and been in their homes and, you know, much like any other fundraiser, we're privileged in this way to uh, really talk to people about you know things that they don't talk to anyone about you know their their uh, estate gifts and sometimes what they plan or don't plan to give to their heirs and their house and their business and struggling with who's going to take it over. It's a privileged position to be in, um, but I think what I what I have learned is that no matter the the bank account the capacity of the donor, we're dealing with individuals who care about what they're doing, no matter what the dollar amount is. And they want to be recognized, to your point, gratitude for what they've done. And we need to acknowledge that. And so I, I've learned that. So you have had a, a uniquely varied career in that you've done fundraising for the arts, you've done fundraising for the AIDS Foundation, you've worked with the broader nonprofit community, but then ultimately uh, you had a 13 year run at UT Austin uh, in a variety of capacities, really for the first time in education um, fundraising. What do you think it was about the opportunity at, at UT Austin that maybe um, created, you know, one, I mean, 13 years at one institution is rare in a sector where we talk about turnover and short tenure all, all the time. That was the opposite of what you experienced. What are some of the highlights there? And at what point did you know that maybe this higher ed advancement world was the right uh, path for you? A few things. One, coming out of nonprofit going into higher ed was a deliberate choice. Uh, after the 10 or so years of uh, fundraising and nonprofit, being part of 
those management teams and charting paths, uh, I realized that for, for the nonprofits I had been at, and this is not the case for many nonprofits, but for the ones I had been at, um, there was no upward growth at those organizations because I came in as uh, the director of the vet development or the chief development officer. I'm on the leadership team and there's no, there's no upward momentum there. Uh, two, at some of the organizations that I, were, I was at, um, resources can be limiting. You know, and so I wanted an opportunity that provided me with growth, uh, stability, and resources. I mean, it, it, to be to be very uh, frank, and being in Austin, um, uh, and I enjoyed and loved the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I will I will jump back to what I said a few minutes ago. Uh, in full disclosure, that institution that accepted me into their engineering school. It was the University of Texas at Austin. So, um, you you were very disciplined about not revealing, and I didn't want to uh, push you. So, thank you for the candor. Uh, so, I I love UT. Have been a little horn since that time, and so the opportunity to work there after all these many years and walk the forty acres, I was like, I want to work at UT, and it and I had a great experience there, and the reasons why for me was I was able to grow, take on other um, uh, leadership opportunities, learn about higher ed in a very uh, comprehensive way, uh, which, is, which is where I want to be. And, uh, and then the community piece of it. And, and you know, at a big, large public institution, there's bureaucracy, there is, you know, everything that you might imagine just dealing with a, a $2 billion organization, 50,000 students, 20,000 staff members, you know, you know, going on. But I found community there uh, amongst the fundraisers. Um, and that's something that I think being in a nonprofit, uh, specifically if you're in a small shop, the, you know, you are the knowledge base. Of course, there are other organizations, there's AFP and different associations, but at UT, you know, there are you know, different levels of experience um, and I could tap into that. And then the, the, um, the focus, the ability to focus on if it's just major gifts that I'm working on or, you know, major, like when I was chief development officer at the library as a major gifts, it was an annual giving component. Um, and I'd have to worry about planned gifts. I'd have to worry about any of these other things necessarily. And so when you're in, your, in, in a nonprofit, you are the knowledge base for all of those areas. And I just wanted to grow a little bit more and focus and just find my path. And so higher ed did that and it's currently doing that for me. I love it. And then obviously going from the flagship, the large you know, public to St. Edwards, which is a small private with a you know, different but important mission. Um, you know, had to be a big, you know, a big shift. And at the same time, um, as I look at your, at your background, you have been doing DEI related work um, before it was maybe as um, common or as, as, as um, frequently discuss as discussed as it is today. And certainly over the last year, um, and I suspect you also were doing it in a certain regard before that was even an expression that anybody uh, used. And so I'd love to take the time that we have left and get your perspective on that aspect of your journey. And I also want to invite Jessica into the conversation because uh, she has really spearheaded this initiative um, at Evertrue. Um, and, and so I, I guess my, my question would be maybe most broadly is, you know, what does DEI mean uh, to you, Gregory? And how do you think about the, um, the evolution of that work, which you've referenced the civil rights, right? You've referenced, uh, you know, your aspirations of being a lawyer um, rooted in some of that. So it's always, I think, it seems like that a part of your interests, but it's really exploded over the last year or two 
um, in becoming such an important real discipline um, in all lines of work, ever true as a for-profit vendor in the space, trying to think about what can we do to improve our own DEI initiatives internally, but also how can our work uh, in supporting higher education fundraising also have second and third um, you know, levels of, of impact. Uh, and I imagine you must think about it the same way, given St. Edwards has a tremendous history of supporting access and equality to education mm -hmm. through things like the camp program. Um, but then there's also the reality of what can your advancement shop or your university leadership team uh, do? So what is DEI to you today and, and how has that evolved in your life? Great question. I think the inclusion piece has been the foundation for me. And it's interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought about this construction until you asked the question that we have gotten over the past 20 plus years to inclusion and now access, we're adding that. We started at affirmative action and diversity was the, the thing for decades and then we moved to equity. And for me, it's always been um, this inclusion piece, even though I did not have the word for it, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and fortunately we are there now because you can't have the others without um, inclusion. And if you have inclusion, you have to have diversity and equity because that drives you to that point. Uh, and so for me, it is um, making folks feel accepted and welcomed and having them treated equitably. And that's what, that's what drives me. Um, and I, I look back over, over the teams and I've been uh, a fundraising manager, a nonprofit leader uh, for over 20 years now. And I've managed teams of various sizes. And for me, it's just, um, it's just sort, of, sort of a no brainer uh, that I want diverse voices at the table. I want to hear from everyone. I want everyone to be comfortable with me as the leader to know that I'm there for your success, right? Because your success means the team succeeds, the organization succeeds. But my first point of entry is, how do I make my team members successful? And by nature, my nature, that drives, that goes right to equity, that goes right to inclusion because I cannot make you successful unless I understand what your role on the team is, how to motivate you, and I'm willing as a leader to commit to doing those things. And so to me right now, uh, the whole effort is valuable, but it's that inclusion piece that has always been there. I didn't have the word 20 years ago, but that's what it was. And I'll just share this as well. Um, I, you know, as we, as we talk about inclusion and, and there's, and it's meaning a lot and we're really moving forward as a society. I remember um, several decades ago that uh, I had a staff member that I had just hired, a uh, gentleman uh, on my team. I think he, uh, he was doing uh, corporate foundation relations. I, I don't remember. And uh, qualifications was great. Everything was great. And about maybe a month into the job, maybe maybe it was less than that, maybe it was a week, I don't remember. He comes into my office, Greg, can I have some time with you? It's like, sure. And so he, he you know, he's kind of tense and, and I can see that there's something on his mind. And what I'm thinking is like, dude, you only been here a little while. I mean, please don't be leaving right now. You know, I'm not trying to go through another hiring thing. And what this gentleman shared with me was that he um, was trans and that he was in the middle of his transition and would eventually you know, be making that transition and wanted to share that with me and, and all that came with that. And at the time, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of naive on many things. That was like, okay, um, I'm here, you know, share whatever you need to share with me, it's fine, glad you're on the team. And, and that was kind of it for me, I had no real, um, I mean, we didn't impact his job. You know, he, he, he worked well. He, he was the best person we hired. And 
looking back, and that was that was probably just my naivety as a manager or whatever, just to just be accepting. And maybe that's just my personality. I was just accepting. I was like, cool, dude. You know, we'll we'll accept you however you are, whatever, however you want us to refer to you. You know, it's fine. I, I, I there's no problem. Um, but now looking twenty, I'm like, dang. It was like that. I mean, and people are having issues with this now. And twenty years ago, you know, I was managing a person like that who was very productive. I mean, just like it was nothing to me. And I'm I think about that. In many iterations of how um, my career has had these moments of um, living out this value, I guess is where I'm going with that. The other thing that that's really amazing to me, and um, has nothing to do with me as as a leader as a anything is um, most of the teams that I have managed, and maybe this is just a nonprofit phenomenon, have been women and predominantly white women. You know, I, I, it wasn't until I got to UT and in the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement that I actually had um, uh, Blacks or Hispanics uh, on my team. And so that was, that's an interesting phenomenon as I look back at, at, uh, at my career as well. Can I jump well, in? I, I really quick? appreciate the perspective. And Jessica, I was just gonna ask you, um, you know, certainly if you have comments or questions following up on Gregory, but, but also, you know, you joined Evertrue from Dana-Farber and you kind of had this observation upon joining that, mm-hmm. um, that we weren't, you know, that on one hand, I think as you've written, we had a, a really fun, you know, collaborative culture, but that we weren't maybe being as intentional around some of the DEI um, education and investments that you had experienced in a positive way at Dana-Farber. And so, that was really your catalyst. So what's on your mind as you um, have been listening in here? Well, it's really interesting just on Gregory's last point about um, his previous like offices and their demographic being mostly white women. Um, As a white woman, I've always looked for white women in like leadership spots to like inspire me to apply for a job somewhere because I can then like see myself as that person growing into that like leadership position. And so it's really interesting because my previous role at Dana-Farber, probably like 80% of the office were white women of a certain like class level as well. Like, I think that's important to note certain education, certain standards of living. Um, and previous to that, I had gone to a women's college um, where like women were leaders everywhere. And that was an amazing experience for me because that's not how the world works at all. So it's very interesting for me to have come from such women dominated spaces, pivot into tech, which Evertrue is very well balanced in terms of gender, but tech in general is maybe more male dominated, um, but still predominantly like white leadership at least. Mm-hmm. So it's been really interesting yeah. to like see from this perspective. Yes, I still have women in power. Are there a lot of women, like women CEOs? Maybe not, but like women at that leadership level. One observation I've had about advancement in general is that there's a lot of women kind of at the at the bottom of the funnel or the pyramid, but then a lot of the leadership positions are actually men. And I find that very interesting. Total side mm-hmm. tangent, but I'm always curious. But where is, you know, where are the men in the well, middle? And, and if if I can comment on that a little bit, Jessica, mm-hmm. I, you know, there have been countless studies that show the founding team. Uh, composition of a company has significant long-term influence on the diversity. If you've got, mm-hmm. uh, if you've got a uh, an Indian founder uh, on the team, the odds that there's more South Asian team members go way up over time. If you have a female founder, and so forth. If you have a black founder, so forth. And in our case, you know, coincidentally, um, you know, Evertrue had three white guys as our founding team. And so when you kind of plant that seed early, um, it, it, it does compound. And I remember we were in a tech accelerator program, tech stars, and there was another team where, where the whole team were, uh, uh, they were, they were um, uh, Indian American, one Indian, Indian American founders. And, and guess what their early hires uh, skewed towards versus what our early hires skewed towards. And so like none of that was intentional, right? And like um, we never sat around saying, well, you know, if we're going to start a company, we need to create, uh, you know, inclusive 
founding team that's diverse with different, it was like, we just were trying to survive and who's going to come on this crazy journey with me. And, um, and then that just, that persists. And I think you, you, you then look at a sector like higher education where you've now got hundreds of years of history and a lot of colleges that were only white men for hundreds of years in some cases. Uh, you know, I, I feel like changing the, uh, the dynamic at Evertrue from the seeds we planted 10 years ago is hard. You know, imagine if they were planted 400 years ago. And so I think there's an element there and you know Gregory would welcome your perspective on any of what I and Jessica just shared. So the word that pops out and I appreciate you sharing that the word that pops out is intentionality or being intention intentional and Brent I appreciate what you shared because that is the that is the fact and um and and I'll just dive a little deeper in that um when we look at folks who we want to bring on our journey with us, especially as an entrepreneur starting a new venture, there has to be trust there. There has to be respect there. We have to have a shared vision. And when you're risking so much, many times it is those guys for guys, most of the time, who you were in college with, perhaps a fraternity brother, someone you were in business school with, and you all or putting your, your lives together and your fortunes together to move forward. And to your point, you're, you're not, there's no intentionality of exclusion by any means. You're trying to just close capital, move this part, is it viable? And what we learned from that, and this is, this is endemic across the board because of what you've just said, and, and the proof is obviously in the pudding. If you look at um, the, the C-suites of many companies, um, it is that. It is much of the same, and that culture does start at the beginning. And what I have to say about that is, if that is fact and we know it, then we need to begin to build in um, more opportunities for either women, minorities, Hispanics to have that same experience. And when I say that same experience, to be able to get capital to start there, right? Because, you know, nothing against you, Brett, or anyone other entrepreneur, you're going to bring the people you trust. And even though there's another guy over there who might be able to add to your team right now, it's just the three of us so we can get this idea going. And once we're in it and working it, it's a couple of years down the road before you begin to hire an HR person, whatever, and you begin to think about these organizational structures. And, and so if we know that, then how do we get those other folks also in the game as well? Now, there yeah. are some there are some folks who may think at the beginning, you know, let's bring on someone else, and that's wonderful. But we have to understand what, what you just said, Brett, to begin to change that model a bit. And higher ed, you, you're right, 100 years of um, really, in many institutions, uh, systemic racism, institutional racism, exclusion, segregation, uh, just trauma takes time to unwork. And, uh, but you have to be intentional about it. And part yeah. of it is owning your past as an institution, owning your past. And we're seeing that with, you know, the Georgetowns and Brown universities and others who are part of this consortium of investigating our past and owning it and bringing it to light uh, if there's an opportunity for uh, reparations or repairing relationships, let's do that. But let's understand what got us where we are today. And so that's yeah. that's a bit of that. No, I think I, I like your expression around intentionality. And, you know, there's a lot of that uh, at Evertrue right now with Jessica and her, and her colleagues on our DEI committee have definitely um, further codified. And I think about the spectrum of... Um, you know, do you have ranging from intentions to outcomes, right? There, there could be organizations and leaders out there who actually reject everything we're talking about today and actually have zero intention or interest in supporting DEI. I mean, I hope that's a smaller and smaller group, but those people exist. And then I think there's probably a group of folks that are relatively indifferent. And then I think that there's a group of, of folks who are much more 
intentional about wanting to improve and wanting to learn. And then I think there's a group of folks that are generating outcomes. And I think it's like right now, I I view us at that really good intentions, but we've got to deliver outcomes. And that's what we're going to be, you know, we're never going to feel like we've, like, this is not a mission accomplished moment. Like, I don't think ever we're going to be like, okay, we did it. Like now we have Mm -hmm. DEI, you know, the end, but I think it's all right, let's get really intentional about trying to improve. Let's get, let's sort of be realistic about the fact that it is going to take time, but at the same time, let's not give ourselves too much of an out or be too patient. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, certainly something Jessica and, and her colleagues have really um, just helped move us from positive intentions and pushing more toward outcomes. And I think that the, the equity and inclusion piece fits in here because, you know, uh, many organizations start with diversity and we have uh, uh, African-Americans in our organization. We have Hispanics, we have women in decision-making positions and all that is a step forward. Um, are they included in um, the outcomes? And I'm talking about bottom line outcomes of the organization. And that's really where the, the continuum is, uh, should be moving towards. And to your point, Brent, organizations are at different spots, but it's not enough to just have folks on your team. You, for them to be, to get the value, to get the value of, of this effort, you've got to listen to them. You've got to charge them with outcomes for the organization. Uh, and we've got to incorporate their uh, ideas and vision because that's the, that's the benefit of diversity is that you have other perspectives and other ideas that come to the table that you can look at a market and say, well, you know, we've been hitting it this way. Who has a different idea? What, where's the innovation? Um, and, you know, it's hard to innovate when everybody has the same outlook. You know, yeah. I mean, unless you just send everybody to everybody else's conferences, bring ideas, um, you know, it, it's just hard. And that's that's the world we've had for centuries. And we've thought that that's the way to operate. And it really isn't. And this is not my opinion, but you, you know this research. You go to McKinsey and Company, Deloitte, all the consulting firms, uh, Harvard Business Review, all of them have, have published that. Yes, this is a business imperative. If you want to increase your margins or move forward, this is, this is definitely a strategy to do. And I mentioned that specifically for those companies and organizations who's listening to this and are still on the side of, you know, why would I need to do that? I've got the right team I have right now. Yeah, you, you have a good team and it may be the right team for where you are now, but what about the future? How are you going to expand into diverse markets if you have no idea what that market is looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just one thing. So, yeah, look, I think that's where on the spirit of, of, of where we're at on, on the uh, spectrum, I believe that like first and yeah. foremost, I think it's the right thing to do. Second, I believe in the positive business impact. We'd be crazy not to uh, really commit to, to DE and I, um, but that's different than, the outcomes piece. And that's where, you know, Jessica, I'd love to kind of get your perspective sort of a year into what has been a pretty grassroots initiative at Evertrue. Um, what are your main reflections? What are your, you know, what are you most excited about? What have been your biggest frustrations or areas of, um, you know, challenges? And, um, you know, you know that I, I am uh, more than, than um, willing to accept, you know, the constructive uh, criticism and, and feedback uh, privately, but also here on, no, on the podcast too. Publicly is good. Um, I, know, I think something that Gregory just said that um, kind of early on at the D, in the DEI committee, we were really focused on diversity. Like we are mostly white people. How can we hire more diverse voices? And now we've, I think we still are very focused on that, but also have like a new intention around inclusivity and making sure everyone is heard and feels like a part of the company culture. Um, especially now that we're all remote, all remote and all of the new people that we've hired at Evertrue do not work in the Boston area, have no idea what the Barking Crab bar is. Like they don't know a lot of these internal inside jokes per se. 
Um, so there's like that opportunity, but also thinking about like fundamental systems in place that maybe we don't have that we could have um, to create like feedback systems for improvement. Like uh, Gregory said, Austin was really transformative because there was opportunities for growth and real resources there. So once we, you know, attract certain talent, we don't want them to leave after a year, right? We want them to contribute to that bottom line. So yeah. what's important to the employee experience, I think has been kind of a over, over encompassing theme this year for us. Um, but one thing that's certainly challenging is quantifying all of our success. Cause I feel as though, I feel as though that is what leadership often wants to see. What is the data behind DEI? And that's always been a challenge for me from the get-go, even in my original pitch to you, Brent, that we needed a DEI committee. Oh, now I need to show why we need this. But like, I struggle there because it's so obvious to me. Do, do I really need to show you that McKinsey study that is more productive for everybody and that hiring these diverse voices is going to be better? So that's something that we continually struggle with or like the data behind DEI. I think it has to be a culture thing. I appreciate you sharing that, Jessica, because I think many organizations are challenged by this. Um, this is this is the way to that businesses should have operated from the beginning, my opinion, right? So for now, for us to move in this area, DEI isn't a new business strategy. And so if you approach it that way, you may miss it and not get the benefit of it. Companies have been run for centuries by all white men and no one questioned that. And so now that we're beginning to have more diversity, more women at the table, decision makers, more blacks, more Hispanics, I don't think it is fair to question what is their value. I think the question is, are, what is the bottom line? Are we losing? Are we still reaching our margin? Whether we do that or not cannot be tied to whether we have a diverse workforce. To me, that is not uh, an appropriate way to move forward. If you're committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, it is part of your culture, just like you're committed to giving your, your staff members annual leave or uh, maternity leave or whatever that's part of your culture. And we don't evaluate, you know, that necessarily on those ends. But I, I yeah. think companies are wrestling with that. And we and it's going to take some time for us to just get over that hump to it just being this is the way we operate. So yeah. well let, let's just um I, I really appreciate that. Let's talk for a second about indirect DEI versus direct DEI. And what I mean by that is you know we've also been thinking at Evertrue look we had a really cool example uh, recently where, you know, Gregory, we've been launching these donor experience programs and we've got student donor experience programs. And one of the reasons we've been excited about both of those programs is we, we believe it can create more of an on-ramp for either student or recent graduate talent to uh, get onto a professional fundraising path. Um, you know, much like you did uh, by way of your internship, but with an even more structured uh, end goal. And and we just had an amazing example where there's a senior at Western Kentucky University, Jahari Burnett, African-American student who, when he signed up as an SDXO and went through this program, he, he, I met with him early on and he said, I didn't even know that fundraising was a career path. And so he, he operated in this role over the last several months. He did a great job, had some really neat donor success stories emerge, and he just accepted a position as a full-time DXO at Western Kentucky University when he graduates here this spring. And so we all feel really, really good about that for Jahari uh, and then his colleague, uh, uh, Will, who uh, is one of the DX, SDXOs just accepted a role too. But we look at that as saying, well, that's not exactly, you know, Evertrue's DEI, but if it weren't for our work and for our partnership, that position wouldn't have emerged. And, you know, it's fair to say that Jahari wouldn't have had that opportunity. So on one hand, we need to focus on our direct efforts, internal efforts, but how can our work create a positive effect? And that I think is an area where uh, no one could argue that advancement, whether it was all white men at the table or uh, whoever it may be, 
has been working for really hard, uh, really hard for decades to try to increase access um, and opportunity, mm-hmm. um, even if that doesn't mean that the internal direct efforts were demonstrated in the leadership and the org chart. So I'd just be curious to kind of get your perspective on that. And then Jessica, you know, yours as well, as you even think about um, measuring our success around, around this, um, this commitment. Yeah. I, I'd like the way you position that, the indirect and the direct. Um, and, I, and I think you're very valid in taking a bit of credit um, for Evertrue's work in that area because setting up a structure for an institution to be successful um, helps them to move forward, right? I mean, higher ed is, it takes a lot to change the way we do our business, but having a partner uh, like you that says, hey, here's a structure, come along with us, try this, moves us forward. So I, 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 you, I, I applaud you and I think you're very valid in taking- And can I tell you, you know, Gregory, just as a positive anecdote, we, when we set up that structure, we, it is in our marketing materials, we say, and one of the benefits here is if DEI is an area of focus for your institution right now, this can be the on-ramp for diverse students who might not otherwise know about this career path. Let's be intentional about recruiting uh, a, a diverse population, getting them in these roles so that they're equipped. And eyes light up. Your mm-hmm. eyes light up at that part of it. And, you know, Jessica, to your point, it's not about the ROI slides, right? I mean, yeah, the, people want to know the return on investment, but their eyes don't light up the way that they do when we say, hey, this could be a way to really address some mm-hmm. of your direct internal needs, even though it's a little bit more indirect for us. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing. And we are, um, and many schools are, are, are looking at how do we do this? And, and you know, from a, from a case perspective, and I, I'm involved in case very heavily, that pipeline of talent, which is something I'm very passionate about, goes to what you've just said. And we need more structures, more avenues for students uh, of all backgrounds to see uh, fundraising as a viable career for many reasons. Uh, one, the giving back, one, just su- supporting institutions um, because that's what got us where we are. You know, I mean, there was a higher ed institution that put me on the path that I am on. And so that's a, that's a great avenue. So I, I'm all for that. And, and I like the way you said that that direct and indirect and we, and there's value there. And I think we need to acknowledge more of that. Um, to your point, uh, you know, this diversity, equity, and inclusion piece, the diversity piece, which is sort of that first effort, um, began, you know, years ago where there weren't diverse people at the table making these decisions, saying we need to go in that area. And so uh, I applaud that effort. But what's critical now, and I think we will see even more, is going back to something Jeff Sedeska referenced early on, is seeing herself, perhaps, women in these positions and knowing I can aspire to that. I did not, personally, I did not have that issue, but I am not the bulk of most African-American young men coming up. I did not necessarily need an example I was just driven. I was like, somebody else made a career at this. I'm going to do it too, because, you know, I want to own a house one day. I want to, you know, take vacations and all of this. So there was this real economic drive of, I've got to find a career. But there's some young folks coming up behind that are never going to look at advancement until they see a me in, in, in a position making decisions or a Jessica for a young lady. And we have to have those folks there for these students to find a mentor or someone to look up. Hey, I didn't even know. So yeah. Well said. Jessica, any uh, thoughts you want to share? Other questions that are top of mind? Um, well, I guess, let me just, I had some written down. I want to make sure I, I think we covered most of them. I think one thing that I'm interested in, particularly because I did work in fundraising for a bit and I actually got my start at my alma mater working as an intern in their office. So like I knew that it existed because my mom had told me. So there was like, you know, um, that train of thought. But one thing I'm interested is in like advancement shop turnover, Um, even in like the fundraising office I was in, you know, 18 months to 24 months, like the average 
time there. So are there any like fundamental systems that you've seen work really well to retain talent or things that you would like to see people kind of put in? Yeah. I mean, Jessica and Jessica's brought up a lot. Her role at Evertrue is customer success manager, right? Her job is to help ensure our customers uh, uh, achieve success. And um, that is reflected in renewal rates and, and strength of the partnership and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, you know, who is responsible for employee success? You know, you all every day, Gregory, come to work thinking about donor retention. What if we thought about employee retention the same way? Is that already happening or is that an opportunity for the sector? It's definitely an opportunity. Talent management, I think, is critical. There's some institutions, several around the country, who I think are doing it very well. But a few just takeaways. Uh, we say training, but the but onboarding is critical. We, we talk about training, but onboarding, uh, bringing a person, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter if they're experienced, but definitely a new person to the field, to the institution, to fundraising, the onboarding process of giving them the tools they need and helping them understand what fundraising is, the development shop, even if it's on the services side, what we're doing is critical to have them be retained. Um, and many times we, we hire somebody and two or three weeks later, we're sending them out to visit with a donor. And you know what, they may be, they may be all right or whatever, and it, it, may be, it may lead to success, but their programs were, you know, it's like six weeks. It's like two months before you're out on a call by yourself. You've got to go out on a call with your direct director. Maybe the AVP takes you. I mean, you've got to learn how we talk about the institution. I mean, there's a lot to that. Talent management and onboarding, just in a nutshell, to me, are critical to retention and making staff understand how we do things. It's more than just reading the the, the the manuals of how we do a gift, but the culture. All right, so I'm gonna wrap it up here. I wanna be sensitive of your time. I'm gonna ask you both this same question uh, as, as we uh, wind down today's conversation. Gregory, uh, we haven't talked too much about the day-to-day -day at St. Edward's right now, but when you think about St. Edward's specifically or the sector more broadly, next one, two, three years, what are you most excited about? What are you most optimistic for? Um, St. Edwards uh, is an outstanding institution, and I'm, I'm fortunate to work there for our, for our students and engage our alumni. I'm excited because we have a new president coming in. Dr. Montserrat Fuentes will join us uh, July 1, and that's always exciting. And I, I, even uh, there are folks who feel kind of nervous when a new president comes in. I'm always excited because um, I'm believing that we're going to get some new ideas, uh, new vision, new hope. And that's not an indication of any of the previous vision, but it's just energy. People tend to be energized. We'll have a, you know, an inauguration of a new president and our alumni, you know, will get to, to, to just experience that. And so I'm encouraged by that for us. And of course, you know, naturally that will lead into a new campaign at some point in the future because Love we it. are well a higher said. ed institution. Well said. Jessica, what are you most optimistic, excited for in the next year or two? Um, I'm excited to meet all of my remote colleagues at some point who I've never met in person. Um, so looking forward to that, seeing how tall everybody is in real life, as opposed to just their Zoom heights. Um, and then also, I think like figuring out our company culture in a, in a remote world, um, what it means to us as we continue to expand our various services um, and just like have a good pulse of what it is so that we keep the core of like whatever true is and why a lot of us were drawn to work here in the first place. I, I love your, your comments there. And I just have to say yesterday, so we're just north of Daytona Beach and we hired uh, an individual on our team as a donor experience program manager named Teddy Cook. We hired Teddy uh, almost a year ago now uh, he was in Atlanta at the time. And so um, he and his fiance have now relocated uh, to be near her family here, just north of Daytona. And we got to meet up with him last night for the first time in person, uh, ever meeting him. And really one of the only times I've seen any of my colleagues in person over the last year. And as much as I remain incredibly optimistic about 
the potential for you know hybrid work, remote work to support efficiency, to support DEI, to 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 just improve people's um, you know our, our day to day. Uh, it was amazing seeing our new colleague, uh, and I say new a year a year in yeah. uh, in person, and so it does make me really optimistic. I know probably Gregory and. In Texas, you've had an opportunity, maybe periodically, to to catch up with folks, but um, we're we're just uh, just on the cusp of that at at EverTrue. So uh, I share that optimism, uh, Jessica, for sure. All about those all relationships. All right, Gregory. If, it is all about the relationships, Gregory. If people want to stay in touch with you, uh, you know, explore opportunities at St. Edwards. Um, what's the best way to do that? I know you're active on LinkedIn. Is that a good place, or what would you recommend? LinkedIn is excellent, um, or my email, gparron at stedwards, S-T-E-D-W-A-R-D-S dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to, to help any way I can. And Jessica, if people want to stay in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn is great. Otherwise, it's jessica.frey, F-R-E-Y at evertrue.com. Love it. Well, thank you both for joining uh, in the conversation. We covered a lot of ground. You know, Gregory, I, I'm just going to sum it up. That Venn diagram, there's just one guy in it, and it's you. And it's been a privilege to get to know you better. And I look forward to continued partnership here in the coming months and years. Okay. Be well. Thank you, Brett. This has been fun. All right. Take care. Hi, everyone. 